But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, the tribune unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I do not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The word of the Lord. To be fair, some of you are growing weary of the book of Acts. We started in January or February, and it's funny, when you get to a certain point in the sermon series, and some people do the subtle cozy up uh, kind of, hey, so how much longer are we going to be here? And other people uh, are much more direct and simply say, uh, can we wrap it up, please? We really would like to consider some other aspect of, of God's word. And uh, even I said to Zach and Julie this week, I cannot believe we're still in the book of Acts. But that being said... Uh, the danger of running through something too quickly is so you might pass over some real hidden gems in the Word of God. Now, to be fair, I don't, I don't know any theologian that argues that all of Scripture is really given to preaching. I think it would be pretty laborious to, say, for example, go through the entire Mosaic Law in detail. Uh, even Calvin uh, refused to preach on Revelation, uh, thinking that it was something that was uh, beyond uh, him and not necessarily uh, to be brought to bear in the context of a sermon on uh, his people. But again... If we only choose what we like or if we rush things too quickly, we do uh, run that risk of missing a uh, hidden gem. And, and today is that case. Uh, today is one of those passages where if you just at first reading, it might not seem that impressive, but really you have an encapsulation of the gospel in a very beautiful way 
uh, and a revelation or a, a way of seeing the ways in which we often miss or move away from resurrection in a way that compromises our faithful walk. And so this is what we're trying to see today. And we'll consider then, uh, I'd like to tackle it in these four ways, these four points. Number one, the need for resurrection. Number two, the danger of losing resurrection. Number three, resurrection is freedom. And number four, resurrection produces gratitude. Uh, So one is the need for resurrection. Number two is the danger of losing it. Number three is freedom, resurrection is freedom, and number four, resurrection produces gratitude. So, how do we see Paul bringing to light the need for resurrection in our passage? Well, let's set the stage and remind ourselves where we are. Paul has just caused an enormous kerfuffle in the temple, and so much so that the people were ready to stone him, and the Roman tribune had to be dispatched because the Romans are in charge of keeping peace in the city. They grab Paul. Paul asks for the opportunity to address the crowd. He does so, which ends up in the crowd being even more ready to stone him. So the Romans take him out and put him in jail overnight, and it's the next morning in which they're trying to decide what to do with Paul. And now, please note, because it will be important in various aspects, that moving forward, the Jews don't really have authority over the situation. The Romans are the ones in charge and in power, And the Roman has the authority to call the Sanhedrin together. Uh, The Sanhedrin are the ruling uh, ruling leaders of Judaism, and they're made up of both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and we'll talk more about them later uh, this morning. But what the Roman tribunal is essentially doing, he's woken up, he's saying, I don't know what the big deal is about Paul. This is obviously a dispute that is internal to Judaism, so I better assemble the Jewish leaders and they can grant me some kind of clarity about what is going on and what to do with Paul. And this is how you have the gathering uh, coming together. Paul's brought in. He says, listen, my conscience is clear before God. Uh, He's probably referring to what's just happened in the temple, that he hasn't made any gross error. And as soon as the words come out of his mouth, he gets clocked, which was a sign in Judaism, right, to be struck in the mouth was a symbol that you had spoken words of blasphemy, and you must be rebuked in that fashion. Well, Paul doesn't know who gave the order, and he's mad. Because the next thing out of his mouth is, you whitewashed wall, right? who are you to strike me? He's told that the person who gave the order was actually Ananias, the high priest at the time. And Paul has to repent. You, you see that Paul's human. And there's this moment of real anger and rage. Right? He's just been struck, thinks undeservedly. But the law, uh, particularly Exodus 22:28, says you can't speak ill of the leaders of your people. And so Paul repents, and he says, I'm sorry. By the time all this has happened, Paul, you know, you almost see him, uh, you get the notion that he catches his breath, he takes stock of the situation, and then he pulls out this brilliant uh, political move and essentially uh, says, let's get this party started. Because in verse 8, I'm sorry, in verse 6, he realizes that who's making up the council? Both Sadducees and Pharisees comprise of the Sanhedrin. You've got two different political parties. And so he says, uh, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, the reason this is significant is in part because Paul knows that this is going to immediately divide the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin is going to be locked in debate as soon as he issues Uh, those words. But it is, at the same time, the heart of Paul's gospel. 
Right? He will write to the Corinthian church that if resurrection is not true, we are of all people most to be pitied because our entire faith and hope hinges upon the promise that we will be raised from the dead. Without it, right, there is really nothing to be living for. And this was what we were trying to get at in some ways with the children's lesson this morning. The need for resurrection is your need for hope. Without resurrection, there is no hope because there is nothing that's coming that undoes the brokenness in which we exist. And so it is a desperate need and one that may not be diminished, but sometimes in our waiting, sometimes in our frustration, sometimes in our lack of faith, we push the resurrection off. We, we say maybe, you know, we kind of limit it. We don't live our lives in reference to an eternity that will begin at our death. And when we make that decision, it has huge implications for how we live in the present, which the Sadducees and Pharisees actually help us to see. And so this brings us to point two, which is the danger of losing uh, resurrection, or uh, we might say negotiating resurrection. So Paul, Paul, he, Paul must have been happy with himself, right? In one sentence, nobody's talking about Paul anymore. Uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees are going at each other over whether or not to believe in the resurrection from the dead because this was a major issue that divided the two uh, parties at the time. Now, you may not be familiar with Sadducees and Pharisees, but they're basically two different theological tribes within ancient Judaism. In the same way that you would talk about Methodists or Lutherans or Presbyterians or Baptists today, these were two groups that had different interpretive approaches to Scripture, different values, um, and different priorities in their theological formulae. One of the ways they differed, obviously, is on believing in the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees were, in one sense, the more conservative group. They didn't believe there was any resurrection. Uh, once you died, your story was over. C'est la vie. If God was going to bless you, it happened in this life for your obedience, right? You might ask, well, if there's no resurrection, why would I be obedient? And they believed that God would bless you or curse you in this life for your disobedience, but your death was the end of the story. And in addition, they only believed in the Pentateuch, right? And uh, at this time, the Jewish canon is still being worked out. And why, where the Pharisees will acknowledge all of the books that we acknowledge in the Old Testament, the Sadducees said, no, we only accept the first five, which are called the Pentateuch, right? Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy was their canon. And that the only thing that they thought was inspired. Well, now that provides a little bit of a trick because then you get to verse 8, which is very confusing. For the Sadducees, Luke makes this point, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, uh, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. You think, well, if they accept the Pentateuch, and the Pentateuch has a lot of angels showing up in the stories that occur there, why then is Luke saying that the Sadducees deny angels? And in, in short, uh, Luke isn't referring to angels as in uh, the big angels created different from human beings. The angels and spirits that he's referring to here are as, as a reference to uh, what the Pharisees believed. Now the Pharisees, we've said already, believe in uh, resurrection. And so you might ask, well, for the Pharisees, they believe that someone lives, they die, and then somewhere in the future, there's a resurrection. Now for some of the Pharisees, everyone would be resurrected to judgment. For other Pharisees, only the righteous would be resurrected, and the unrighteous would always be dead. 
But you would ask the question, well, what happens to everyone in between? Right? You've got resurrection somewhere in the future. Christians wrestle with the same question. What happens to the human person or the human soul between death and resurrection? Jews wrestled with this, particularly the Pharisaic branch of Judaism. And their answer was, a person went to the realm of spirits and angels. Right? It's not the realm of, of, of actually being created an angel, but you existed in the state. You actually see this belief uh, coming out in the New Testament. In Luke 24, when Jesus uh, has been raised from the dead and makes an appearance to the disciples, initially they take him as what? A spirit. They don't think he's been bodily raised from the dead. They think, oh, here's the spirit of Jesus. He's died. He's gone to the abode of angels and spirits. Or if you think about Acts 12, when Peter is arrested and the disciples think he's been put to death, but then he shows up knocking at the door, what do they think he is? They say, oh, it is the angel of Peter, right? Meaning Peter's been killed. He's gone on to the realm of angels and spirits. This is who's appearing to us. And you even get that sense um, here in uh, verse 9. Then uh, great clamor arose. Some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. But the Pharisees say, notice, uh, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? In other words, they think, well, Paul's just claiming that the angel or the spirit of Jesus spoke to him, and we don't have a theological problem with that. So we're not going to press this issue. We think we should let him off the hook. The Sadducees, of course, are saying, we don't believe in any realm of angel or spirit. Everyone, when they're dead, is dead. And that's the end of the story. There is no resurrection, way, shape, or form. So, now that you are an expert on different schools of ancient Judaism, you know that Sadducees did or did not believe in resurrection. Did not. Pharisees did. Excellent. Great. We're all on the same page. So, now the question becomes, right, I think as we look at the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we're actually reminded of the ways we treat the resurrection. So, do you have a tendency to live as a Sadducee? Do you have a tendency to live as a Pharisee? particularly as you think about even Christian resurrection. If you live like a Sadducee, right, you, of course, I'm not suggesting to you that you say there's no resurrection. Right? If you're a Christian, you probably confess there's a resurrection. There's not much left if you deny that. But what I am saying is that you think to yourself, the resurrection seems so distant, or I have no empirical evidence of resurrection, so I essentially am going to leave that in the future, and I'm going to live for today. And this is what a Sadducee had to conclude because there was no uh, resurrection. And that, I want to suggest to you, places enormous weight on you. Uh, um, if really you're not willing to think about resurrection orienting the present, nor resurrection, uh, resurrection approaching any of um, what you experience in the present, then this weight will begin to grow upon you that you must experience everything in the, in the here and now because it's the best it's ever going to be. Your, your greatest joy must be had now. Because you really don't know that there's going to be greater joy in resurrection. You must mitigate your sadness and sorrow right now because you don't know if it's going to really be vindicated in the resurrection. Um, you must achieve your greatest significance now because it's not really uh, uh, bound up in the resurrection. Right? It's a life of, of, uh, of great temporality because it ceases to be informed eternally. So um, an example of this would be my first year out of undergrad was teaching in the New York State public system public education system. I taught 11th grade U.S. history. And when you think about New York State, people tend to think all city, but really the city is just a small part of the state. And most of uh, upstate New York is farmland. 
And I taught in a little town that was very agrarian by nature. A lot of kids had grown up on farms, and they knew that they were going back to work on the farm or in the machine shop, and that they weren't going to college. But in the New York State system, by 11th grade, you were done with most of your gen ed. You were kind of fooling around, but you had to take U.S. history. It was required by the state. So I had a bunch of students who, A, didn't want to be in school to begin with, B, certainly didn't want to be in U.S. history, nor believe that it had any impact on their life that was to come, right? And so they looked at their future. They said, I'm not going to college. I don't need this knowledge or information. I don't want to, to, um, to learn. I don't want to abide by your rules. I don't want to participate in what's happening here. And the same degree with us, if, if we begin to back up on resurrection, if we begin to negotiate that reality and how it informs us in the present, then inevitably we'll start to say, well, I really don't need to participate in God's agenda in the same way. It's just something that is, is removed from me. And so we, we then start to live as if these moments in our life are the greatest thing that could ever possibly happen. If you've seen Friday Night Lights, one of, one of the great scenes, uh, I think both in the movie and the show, is uh, a scene in which one of these older high school players is talking to his son and some of the younger players and essentially berating them saying, you aren't taking this football program seriously enough. You don't understand. This is the best four years of your life. The greatest things that are going to happen to you, right, are these four years. And if you let them go by and don't play seriously, right, and he's speaking, he's like, look at me, right? I would give anything to go back and have four years of high school football again. And that's the way you kind of have, when you start to negotiate the resurrection, you start to live a little bit like a Sadducee, that's the weight that gets put on the present. Right? This is your best life now. You better make it best because there isn't anything coming that's going to redeem it right? in the sense of resurrection. I think there's a great pre- pressure on us socially to live in that way. You know, if, um, and the reality is that uh, it, it, does, it doesn't necessarily, at least from a, a cultural standpoint, it doesn't get better as you age. Right? At 30 years of age, your muscles start breaking down faster than you can build them up. At 40 years of age, you lose 2% per year. Right? It is a downhill run uh, from that point forward. Right? And so you might think, well, if there is no, nothing that redeems the story of decay and breaking down, then I really have to enjoy and I have to highlight, I almost have to worship, if you will, what happens for the young. And imagine what kind of culture that would create, a culture that worships youth, that doesn't value wisdom because what you have to give up to get to wisdom isn't worthwhile. It would be like a culture where you got on a news stream and 50% of the stories were about 20-somethings. It would be a depressing place to exist. And, uh, of course, we live in that very world. And that's, but that's the story of a life without resurrection. A life without resurrection is, man, don't get crushed by the weight of having to enjoy the best of everything and have every sadness tied up uh, nicely in this world. And some of you, though, live more like a Pharisee, right? Not so much a Sadducee, uh, but a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, of course, believed in resurrection, but what did they believe about resurrection? You better earn it. 
Your resurrection will be dependent upon your righteousness in this world. This is why they took the law so seriously in the Gospels and are always worried about every jot and tittle because in the background always lies the question, am I going to pass muster at resurrection? Am I going to be included in the number of the righteous? And for some of you, that you go in day in, day out, and you spend more time than you'd like to admit to yourself constantly weighing your, your place before God and against others. Can I count myself amongst the righteous? Have I earned something in God's presence? And you find yourself in a place of constant competition as a result, where you must always measure yourself against those around you. It's, it, the world kind of becomes like hunger games, right? Not necessarily to that level of violence, but there's, if, you, if you're saying, I, I will be judged on my righteousness, and there's a, a limited number of people who will be vindicated in their righteousness, then you live in a world uh, with a very uh, defined and limited supply of righteousness, so you have to make sure that you have more than everybody else. In order. And you know people like this, perhaps you're like this. People like this will be very critical will always be judging. There used to be a woman in the church. She's not here any longer. Uh, but anytime it was interesting to watch when she was in a situation and someone would say something and you could see here the wheels turn and she'd start to say, oh, does that critique my righteousness? Have I just lost something as a result of what I'm hearing this person do? So for example, somebody would say, well, this is how we're approaching our kids. And she would realize, oh, that's a better approach than mine. What would she, would she ask and start try to learn from that? Would she say, oh, you have something to teach me? No. It was instantly, I need to cut you down because you've threatened my righteousness. You've compromised the quantity of righteousness I believe that I have. And so I will judge you, right? And I will, I will make you feel like you have uh, less righteousness. And this is one of the things I want you to get as you think about being a Sadducee or being a Pharisee in terms of thinking about resurrection is that it's a horrible way to live. It's exhausting and it's lonely and it's actually much in the way the world lives. Right? So we can see this pharisaical notion even in a non-Christian context. Uh, I've been fascinated by kind of seeing a certain pattern to conversations that happen in my neighborhood. You know, you bump into somebody on the street or you're out doing yard work next to each other and you start to talk and somebody's, you know, how are you doing? How are the kids? Great, great. And, and usually you talk about something, have you seen this happening in the community? Hey, I've got this problem in my grass. Do you know anything to treat it? Oh, okay, good, good, good. And then inevitably it seems to go to, this, hey, um, to something like, hey, have you heard what happened to the beer guards? I said, no, I haven't heard what happened to the beer guards. Do tell. Because you know everyone loves to hear about someone else's misery. Yeah, they were, they're way overextended. They're living with huge debt. They're losing all the cars. They've got to sell the house. Um, they were giving out, and, you know, last year at the Christmas neighborhood party, they were so snooty, but it was all made up. Right? And, and we eat that up to a degree. Right? Why? Because even at that level, right, people are trying to feel better, more righteous, more put together than others. Right? And so if somebody gets knocked down, that means you get put up a post. And that's what certainly happened in the Pharisaical world and what happens in the church as well when we start to fall into that trap of thinking of resurrection as something that is earned rather than a gift. Right? 
Resurrection being a complete gift from the grace of God that was never deserved and never could be earned, but is simply extended out of his kindness. So how do we appreciate resurrection in that fashion? Well, that brings us to point three, which is resurrection is freedom. To the Sadducees, right, those who would say there's no bodily resurrection, we must remind them and ourselves that indeed the resurrection of Jesus was physical. That Thomas was able to place his hands in the pierced sides and pierced hands of Jesus. And Jesus dined with the disciples, right? It is the bodily resurrection in which we have hope. It is that physical resurrection that is the pledge, according to Paul, of our own resurrection. In a very beautiful passage, which you can turn to if you have your Bibles, which is 1 Corinthians 15. And in verses 20 through 23, Paul says this of resurrection. Paul, in, uh, but in fact... Christ has been risen, uh, raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Paul says, Jesus has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of a harvest. Well, what is the harvest? You are the harvest that you will be raised from the dead, and Jesus is the down payment of that resurrection. And if that is true, and it is bodily, suddenly, my greatest joy doesn't need to be in this world. My greatest joy can occur in eternity. I don't necessarily need to have every tear wiped away in this world, because Jesus promises that will happen in eternity. I don't even need to necessarily establish some kind of profound significance because any significance I could possibly achieve in this world will be dwarfed by the significance of being risen with Christ. Do you begin to get a sense of how freeing that is? Right? You know the pressure that you put upon yourself right? to, to manufacture joy and to decrease sadness and to ensure uh, stability and to make yourself significant. If resurrection is true, all of that gets mitigated to a degree. It becomes relativized. So that, yeah, it's okay if I don't know the joy that I might like to know. It's okay if I know more sadness than I'd like to know. And in that, God can be working indeed toward our resurrection. But there's joy and freedom there. Or you could consider the Pharisees. The Pharisees who uh, believe in resurrection, but believe that that resurrection must be earned, we're reminded that resurrection is indeed a gift. That Christ has broken into time from the future to make a promise of resurrection to us. All right, if resurrection was something that we earned, he wouldn't need to break in from the future to do that, right, from the future judgment. We could just wait and see how everybody does at the end. But instead God says, no, this is my pledge to you. As I've done it for my son, I will do it for all those who are unified to him. Well, that means if I've already got resurrection, I don't really have to obey out of fear. I can actually obey and draw near to God out of love because his love has preceded my action. I don't have to earn that love, which is a pretty remarkable difference, which you know all about in your human relationships, but this is what God is inviting you to. You think about a child, right? Do you want a child who obeys out of fear or a child who obeys out of love? One is just behavior management. One is actual relationship. I could have a child. Imagine one of my children has a real problem with lying. They want to make themselves the best in everything. And, uh, make, so they make up stories 
that they are hugely successful and wildly competent. Okay, well, I don't want you to be a liar. That's not going to serve you well as you grow. I'm going to start to discipline you. And I can control your behavior. I can turn up the disciplines, and I'll turn them up, and it'll hurt more and more, and eventually you'll stop lying. If my child stops lying, does that mean their heart has been changed? What if my child says, you know, this lying thing is getting me into trouble a lot. I'm really tired of getting disciplined. But if I work hard... I actually manifest my greatness in an even better fashion. And now people won't have to bend the knee to a lie. They'll have to bend to me in real life. I haven't done anything for my child's heart. I've only taught them to be more savvy about their sin. And that's what happens when we think that we obey out of fear, right? When we fall into that, I've got to obey. I've got to earn my righteousness. I've got to prove myself worthy of resurrection. But when love precedes that, When love speaks into a child and says, listen, you don't have to be all this. Christ has already loved you. That changes the heart of the child. Or if you think of a marriage relationship, you know. Joe Bob comes home with a a bouquet of roses. says, dear, I love you. And you think, Joe Bob is such a swell guy. But Joe Bob really wants to go out with the boys that weekend. And he's trying to put his wife in a disposition to say yes Go have your man time this weekend. That's fine. I'm all for you, right? Is that love? No, it's manipulation, right? It's trying to control a situation, um, which is that what the husband is trying to do is I want you to perform in this way, so I'm going to try to control you, which is what we're doing when we say, oh, I've been obedient. God, you have to grant me resurrection. You have to grant me reward. I've manipulated you because of my obedience, which isn't love, which means it's not actually a relationship. Right? And God wants something more for us. Well, how do we know we appreciate resurrection in the right way? Our last point is resurrection produces gratitude. Are you a thankful person? Not only for resurrection, but in general, uh, particularly, of course, for resurrection. I can pretty much guarantee you that neither Sadducees nor Pharisees were particularly grateful people. Because at the end of the day, they were seeking to earn all of uh, their rewards. And so they simply wanted God for what he could offer to them. You ever wonder why God delays resurrection? It's actually a pretty interesting theological question. If everything was taken care of at the cross and resurrection... What are we still doing here? Why wasn't everything just wound up? It's actually a really fun question that demands a very long conversation. But one interesting aspect of that delay is that your reward is delayed in the sense that you have to choose whether you're going to love God even in the delay of that reward. Right? If blessings just flowed out all the time for every act of obedience, then we would never have the opportunity to mature and to grow up into a relationship of the one who has loved us to the point of death because we would only be obedient for what we gained as a result of the economic relationship. But by saying, listen, I've, I've promised you resurrection with my son in time, but I'm delaying it to the future. Right? Now I'm calling you to follow me in faith and to actually be motivated by the love that I've shown to you rather than uh, believing or thinking that you have to earn some kind of reward in resurrection. That's one, maybe the only way that we could actually be invited into a loving relationship with the Father. 
rather than one that is driven simply by what uh, we earn or can gain in the midst of our own obedience. And if this is reality, if this is what we believe, that God has approached us this way in relationship, then you can't help but be thankful. Because you actually believe in relationships. Do you understand? Gratitude necessitates the belief of relationship. Gratitude is based on having received something from someone else that isn't necessarily deserved. So if I don't have gratitude, it may be an indicator that I don't actually believe that I'm receiving anything. Or I believe that I deserved it and I don't need to be grateful for it. A lack of gratitude is a great indicator that you really don't understand grace. So how thankful are you? Now, that's a, bit of a, that's a bit of a tip of a spear, I understand. And some of you are in terribly difficult places. And I've known many places, people, or various times, and I've certainly been in seasons of my life where I would say, you know, I really don't have anything to be thankful for. God's a real miser here, and he's not coming through in any way, shape, or form. And when he does, I'll start to be thankful. Now, that's a dangerous place to be because you've decided to stop receiving or acknowledging grace and you've decided to stop being thankful for enormous gifts like resurrection. And so what do you do? I heard one theologian say, one thing to do is to try to be thankful for one thing a day. Right? This is for those of you who are particularly in a place where you just think, I don't have much to be thankful for. And he was talking about a time that he found himself in that place. And he said, I'd wake up and I'd go through the day, and before I could go to sleep, I would demand of myself that I would acknowledge one thing to be thankful for. And he said, when you start to think in that way, it's really kind of interesting because you realize, oh, I'm thankful for indoor plumbing. Most of the world doesn't have indoor plumbing. I'm pretty grateful that I have that. Or I'm grateful that I have air conditioning. Or I'm grateful that I actually have food. A lot of the world is going hungry every day. I'm glad, you know. And you begin to realize, oh, why do I deserve to be born in one of the richest cultures in the history of the world. You don't. It's just grace. It's just how God has decided to play it out. And then from there, you begin to realize the enormity. When we talk about being grateful for resurrection, under, <laughs> under what rubric would you decide that you deserve for the creator to die so that the creation might receive life? That's ridiculous. It's an absurd story but it's the story of the gospel and it's the joy of resurrection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning and thank you that you were willing to become flesh and in your humanity to suffer to such a profound extent and that you would do this out of love for your people. We pray that that love would pour down on us even as we are nourished at your table this morning. And out of that love, we would seek you and seek to be obedient. We're so eager to to make everything for ourselves here and now and to forget eternity. We are so eager to think that we have earned our resurrection and not to see it as gift. And both, both of these are terrible mistakes that imprison us. Would you free us this morning and remind us of the reality of bodily resurrection and remind us that it is a gift pledged Uh, in the midst of time, not dependent on what we have done, but dependent on your grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. And for that, we say hallelujah. Amen.